Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Father, you are infinitely greater than we could imagine. Your goodness to us knows no bounds. And despite all our shortcomings and failings, even those we've had this morning, that you love us with a love that is inseparable, with a love that is based more on you than on us. And you are glad to have made us your own. That you have saved us and are sanctifying us with joy in your heart. We praise you, Lord. We pray that you would bless and guard and watch over this time. Make it useful to us. And sure us up in our walk with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I imagine most, if not all of you, have heard a, a very famous quote from A.W. Tozer that what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about him. That as you think of the Lord, those thoughts that enter your mind says more about you and is of greater importance than just about it, than, than anything else. And I'm, I'm sure most of us with that quote that what comes to mind as you think about God is the most important thing about you has even caused many of you to go, hmm, that's deep. And maybe inspired an artistic and tasteful meme, you know, the kind of meme that you have trouble calling a meme because it's just so good and meaningful. But when's the last time you've really drawn those connection lines? That my belief about God is so important that it, that it actually dictates how I live my life. How, when's the last time you drew those connecting lines between orthodoxy, your doctrine, and orthopraxy, your lifestyle that's based on or shows those doctrines? And, and it could appear that orthodoxy and orthopraxy have somewhat of a chicken and an egg type relationship. But I would contest that the, the orthodoxy in this case is the first and foremost. That our orthodoxy adapts, changes, and in some cases allows for our orthopraxy. And because of that, it's of utmost importance that we tend to our beliefs about God diligently. If we believe God is angry or apathetic, we'll be less likely to pray a lot less likely to repent of our sin or to approach him in times of weakness and confusion. If we believe God is ultra-rigid, 
then we will not experience the joy and freedom that only he can give. If we believe God is a pushover or fickle and caught up in the times, adapting to whatever humans think is okay in the season, then we will not see our need to be saved. We will not see the problem with our sin. We will not see the reality of his judgment. What we believe matters, and so it matters what we believe. But there's a problem with this, because it's, it's not as easy as some would make it sound, and a few people by God's grace have found it to be. It's not as easy to just believe the right things of God. It's hard work. And one of the reasons for this hard work is there's a great deceiver lurking out there, and he's been at it since before the Garden of Eden, convincing a third of the angels to rebel against God with him, convincing Adam and Eve to turn coat on the one command God had given them. And it's hard work, but we do it because of what's at stake, because hard work is usually worthy work, am I right? The things that are the most difficult are often the things that are most worthy of doing. And so as we talk about what we are gathering to do and why it matters that we come together within weekly rhythms to study God's word and be together, I want us to see this, that in gathering, we lovingly and mutually protect protect against the acceptance of dangerous and deceptive beliefs. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Jude. If you haven't done so already, open up to Jude. It's right before Revelation. Jude writes a, a short letter to a church, and we're going to read verses 3 and 4 of Jude. And this is going to set up what we're going to talk about and how we're going to talk about it. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Sounds pretty important. Let's break down briefly what Jude is saying. He's saying, look, I was just so excited to write you because we believe in Jesus and because of that there's this, this deep love between us as brothers and sisters in Christ that the world will never know. But instead of focusing on that, I have to focus on this, that we contend for our faith because there's a lot at stake. We need to contend for our faith because there are people perverting the grace of God Messing with that thing that is so precious, messing with the very thing that saves us, and it leads to sensuality and to a denial of our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is seriousness of the highest level. And of course, you would think, where is this coming from? It's coming from people, those 
certain people who have crept in unnoticed, people who have deceptively and craftily entered their thoughts and their false teaching into the people of God, people who have gained influence, people predestined for condemnation, designated for the condemnation ahead of them, ungodly people. Now this isn't this idea that that people would influence God's children to believe things contrary to Scripture is not new. It's been happening since the book of Acts. It's been happening since the Old Testament. It's been happening since the Garden of Eden. So we need to follow this instruction. This is a word not just for Jude's audience, but for us. That certain people can creep in unnoticed. Paul, as we'll we'll touch on later, Paul refers to them to the Ephesian church as, as wolves who have crept in among you. And here's the deal about predators. Predators are only as effective at hunting as they are at hiding. Does that make sense? Predators are only as effective at hunting as they are at hiding. Predators are most effective when they blend in. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at some who can creep in unnoticed. And the warning this morning is be aware of deceptive teaching that can creep in unnoticed. First of all, from worldly pressures and allure. We're going to look at three spheres, three very broad spheres. And because of time, we're going to have to paint in some fairly broad strokes. But three pretty broad spheres where these deceptive teachings, these false teachers these certain people who pervert the grace of God and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Three spheres that they creep in. The the first is the worldly pressures and allure. For us as believers, it's easy to look around at the world and the lostness and just ride it all off. And certainly there's a lot in the world that engaging it would, would be to participate in the practice called throwing pearls before swine engaging a fool in his folly. And so there's a lot we don't deal with. But even with those we don't deal with, and especially with those we, we do deal with, it's very helpful for us to look at the world, to look at the allure of worldly teaching, to look at the lostness of the world, and to view it through a creation, fall, redemption, renewal lens. Or, in other words, to look at it through a biblical lens, through a lens of the, of the whole story of Scripture. All humanity is made in the likeness of God. All humanity bears the image of God. And all humanity, even in their image bearerness, just don't look up that term in a dictionary, it'll, it'll appear blank. Um, <laughs> All humanity, even in their imago dei, is fallen, marred by sin, less than it should be, fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 1.25 talks about how, how all creation has exchanged the glory of God for created things, and God has given them over, <clears throat> excuse me, 
to a debased mind that the, the foundation of their mind, the foundation of their thinking, the foundation of the worldview has been knocked off. And so they go, they do foolish things, go after foolish values and, and really go after idolatry. So all, all humanity bears the Imago Dei. All humanity is marked by sin, marred by sin, damaged by sin and in need of redemption through Christ Jesus and awaiting the ultimate renewal in heaven at the, at the wedding feast of the Lamb of God in the new heavens and the new earth. I bring this up because understanding this about fallen people, that fallen people possess the image of God and, and even within that, the common grace of God extends to all, all the world, it clarifies some things, at least for me. And one of the things that it clarifies is the trends of the worldly culture and allure. Let me put it this way. Because all people have the image of God in them, there is a, a draw and appeal for people, and you see this with all kinds of trends, to step towards that which feels compassionate and just. There's a tendency, I'm going to say this again, to step towards what feels compassionate and just. This is why the commercials with the starving puppy in a cage raise tons of money. This is why you see people get in an uproar over something that, that contains elements of injustice. The problem is, it is what feels compassionate and just. And this is where we bring in the fall to remember. What feels compassionate and just to the person apart from Christ, even the people within Christ, is not always godly compassion and justice. And that creates an intoxicating combination of a mind that's lost its foundation but still holds a godly desire for compassion. And combine that with the fact that worldly allure has fantastic marketing and turning phrases and getting catchphrases. Again, I'm painting with broad strokes. So the case study I'm going to do here does require a lot more conversation. But the example that jumps off the pages of the world to me is love is love. Who are we to interfere with any monogamous relationship when it's not harming anyone? And what I've seen in terms of, of, of this particular issue of love is love is that it has... A, it has demonstrated the ability to take a lot of people who for a long time were saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, who are now saying, I'm a Christian, and that part of the Bible no longer applies to us. And we see people who are Christian celebrities, which we really need to treat that term as an oxymoron. I mean it.
who have this large following on social media, who because their songs appear on the radio or their books appear on Amazon, we elevate them to a level of authority that the Bible does not elevate them to. And so then when they say, you know what? Ellen DeGeneres is right, love is love, and turn their back on the whole counsel of God in Scripture, they pull with them a following. And so I want to break down some of the, I want to deal with some of the overarching teachings from that, and I need to do this briefly, or we're going to be here till Wednesday, and that's when all the guys are coming for Simeon Trust, and the parking lot's going to get too crowded. So there's, there's a few things that this worldly allure really gets wrong, and we are here to theologically protect. One is they say God has changed with people. I have a friend, he's somewhere in the friend acquaintance spectrum, who went to, he has a seminary degree from a seminary I would not step foot in. And I remember one day he posted on Facebook how humbling it is to see definitively that humans descend from apes. And then in having a conversation about this issue with him, he said, well, God said, what, Jesus said, whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven and loose on earth is loose in heaven. So as the church evolves to see that homosexuality is okay, so does God. Ignoring the fact that right before that, Jesus says, not a single iota of scripture will fall away. Missing the context. And so that God changes with the times. It, 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 that, that idea scoffs in the face of Malachi 3.6, of Psalm 102.26-27, of Numbers 23.19. Let's just go to Psalm 102. We're, uh, I'm, I'm giving the other references just for you to look at later of Malachi 3.6 and, and Numbers uh, 23, 19. So Psalm 102, 26 to 27. They will perish, but you will remain. They, the enemies of God, will wear out like garments. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you, God, are the same. Your years have no end. Our God is immutable. He is unchanging. The second thing we see is that people take an approach where their primary attribute of God becomes love because of 1 John 4, God is love, which is absolutely true. But God in his, in his divine wisdom and his omniscience and his omnipotence has revealed himself to, through scripture very carefully. And there's one attribute of God that stands out above the rest and it's holiness. And here's why it stands out. Because in Isaiah 6, holiness in, of God is the only attribute of God listed three times in succession to give us this emphatic holy, holy, holy and his love and his justice come together under that. So for someone to say, God is not just, God is not a judging God, he's a loving God, they are in essence saying to us, Jesus died for absolutely nothing because Jesus died so that he would face the judgment of God for my sin and I wouldn't. And the last one, and this is probably the, the argument that most people hang on. They say the Bible doesn't really address it, Certainly the New Testament doesn't address it. And they also say with that, they pair with that, what the Bible describes is not committed monogamous relationships. What the Bible describes in homosexuality is either just flagrant debauchery or some form of pedophilia. One of the things that really bugs me with that is in Romans 1, it describes the practices that God has trouble with as exchanging in passions with one another. And I'm just going to say this. 
If your statement was that the Bible only describes pedophilia and the Bible describes it as an exchange, mutual exchangement of passions, then please never do anything with anyone who has suffered sexual abuse. There's an author who's very helpful on this, and I want to point you to her. There's a couple authors on the issue of homosexuality that I would point you to. One is Sam Albury, and the other is Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca McLaughlin has a very short book called Secular Creed, and she writes this. This is a lengthy quote, so bear with me. She says, in Romans 1, 21 to 27, Paul sticks with this theme, weaving between idolatry and sexual sin and arguing that sexual morality in general and homosexual relationships in particular are the consequence of people turning from God. This does not mean that an individual experience of same-sex attraction results from rejecting God. Most Christians struggle at times with attractions that if followed would lead them into sexual sin. In this respect, we're all in the same boat, but if the faithful one flesh union of man and a woman pictures Christ's marriage to his church, which she before this section fleshes that out throughout scripture very well, if, if that union pictures Christ and his church, any sexual relationship that outside that model, one man, one woman in marriage, pictures idolatry. Without boundary lines, there is no image. She goes on to say, some argue that Paul didn't realize there could be mutual love and devotion between people of same-sex romance because he only saw promiscuous and ex exploitative models of homosexual relationships. For example, adult men, teenage boys, or sex with male slaves. They say he would have affirmed gay marriage if he had known there was such a possibility. But while gay marriage was by no means common in the ancient world, it was, and it was not unheard of. Uh, sorry, but she says, while it was no means common, it was not unheard of. In fact, the notorious Emperor Nero, who ruled Rome at the time of Paul, at the time Paul was writing, married other men on two separate occasions. As historian and queer studies pioneer Louis Compton, Crompton puts it, this is, so this is a secular historian, Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer in the period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relationships under the, any circumstances. In fact, and this is a direct quote from Louise Crompton, the idea of homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any Jew or early Christian. A lot of these arguments fall flat. And here's the truth, here's, here's what they miss. They miss the truth of Scripture. They miss the urgency of holiness. They're missing all that God has done to reveal the eschatological reality of the marriage supper of the Lamb and His church. What they do, and we'll get into this towards the end, is they follow a deceptive, twisted heart in all of that's in all of us that's in need of redemption. That is, this is my natural guide. These things are in me naturally. Again, we need to look at the creation, fall, redemption. There's a lot of things that we come by honestly that are not glorifying to God. How many of you ever had to teach your children to be selfish? And here's what else it misses. It misses the worthiness of God. Remember what Rebecca said, that 
talking about us all being in the same boat. Most Christians struggle at times with attractions that if followed would lead them into sexual sin. I have a good friend, a brother in Christ I respect greatly, and he, he says, why can't we just look at those who disagree with us on this issue and say, you struggle with a fallen form of sexuality? Well, so do I. But here's the deal. God is worthy of every part of you being laid on the altar as a, as a living sacrifice for him. And that absolutely includes your sexuality. Remember, he made your body with every nerve ending it has. He designed your body. He is worthy of my sexuality and my trust. This is one area of teaching that's become pervasive in our culture that we see infiltrating the church at different times. It sacrifices God's holiness, immutability, immutability. It sacrifices his inspired word, his design for creation, and his ultimate eschatological renewal. All of these things are called into question. It is not a simple matter. So what do we need to do when looking at the world? One, we need to keep the enemy the enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So the person with the flag, your neighbor who has the rainbow flag outside your house, that neighbor is not your enemy. That neighbor is someone created in God's likeness who needs desperately to hear what Jesus has done for them. And they need you as a Christian to show them the love of God. So you better be mowing their lawn, removing their snow, making them cookies, doing all that stuff, having them into your home. We need to trust the unchanging God and his heart for those who don't yet know or love him. We need to follow his plan for holiness and his plan for sanctification. And we need to come in together because all of us, except for the few of us who are lucky enough to work here, you guys are going to schools and workplaces where you're worried if you speak your mind out of this, you're going to get kicked out. You need to be coming to the church to get theologically built up, strengthened, and sent out to your workplaces because as you go to your workplaces, the Son of God is going with you and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your heart. Gathering is of utmost importance. And so those who creep in, there's this worldly pressure and allure to just be like the world. And there's a whole lot more we could talk about on this. But there's also the sheep's, the wolves in sheep's clothing. Turn to Acts 20, if you will. Paul is giving what ends up being his farewell address to the elders of the Ephesian church. A church that is ripe with false teaching all around them. And he says, I'm going to start in verse 28. Um, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which God has, uh, church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Remember, predators are as effective as their ability to blend in. Wolves rise up. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul gives a similar warning about those who come in of false teachers. And the church, since its inception, has been playing false teacher whack-a-mole. But I found that false teachers, they, they teach something, and it, and it can be boiled down to this. Here's what they teach. Subtracted salvation. They teach subtracted salvation. Here's why it's subtracted salvation. False teaching can never add to the fullness of God. False teaching is false because it takes away from what God has given us. So what they offer, any false teaching, is a subtracted salvation. Sometimes that subtracted salvation is, means that, that what Christ has done and what he's secured on the cross and through his resurrection is less effectual, meaning it doesn't cover all of me. Here's what a less effectual subtracted salvation means. My heart is saved, but my body is free to do whatever it wants. I can show up to church on Sunday, I can sing songs, and it doesn't matter how drunk and plastered I got on the weekend and who I slept with. It doesn't matter how I treat my family in the home because Christ only died for me to come to church and look nice and raise my hands and sing and every now and then go, mmm, that really moves. It's a subtracted salvation. The Lord died for all of you, and his first commandment and his most significant commandment is that all of you, all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength is pointed in the direction and used for the loving of him. God didn't come to save your mind only. He didn't come to save your heart only. He didn't come to save your body only. He came to save all of you that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. So when we think God only came to save my body, this, this led to a form of teaching in the early church where they just wouldn't allow the flesh to have any joy at all. So they'd eat awful food. They wouldn't enjoy anything to the best of their ability. It was a subtracted salvation. The other is that the, the full atonement of Christ is less effective. That he didn't actually bring in a new covenant, as he said. We see this all through. Galatians was written because of this. We see the church wrestling with it in the book of Acts. This idea of like you, that they would take those who were not Jewish by blood and make them Jewish in appearance and make them Jewish in practice in order to be saved. Christ was not mincing words when he said that. So there's a less effective that the, the first covenant wasn't fully fulfilled. But the first covenant still reigns more than it does. It is an idea that leads to legalism that I need to add to the work of Christ that Jesus plus this means salvation as though we could earn it as though we could add to what he's done. That the God who has given us all things for life and godliness, actually, he left one thing out. 
another form of less subtracted or, or of subtracted salvation and less effective salvation is that somehow my sin is the sin that's more powerful than the very blood of Christ. That the grace of God is for other people, but not for me. The less effectual and the less effective, they detract from the fullness and the freedom of Christ. As though the God who said, let there be light, could pull that off. But he's completely stumped by you or by us. And I just don't think that's the case. He came to give us life and give us abundantly. He came to forgive us our sins and to forgive them completely. False teaching is always false by taking away from the fullness of what God has given. So what do we do about the wolves in sheep's clothing? Well, we have, we have three things that I want to offer as preventative maintenance and two things I want to offer as, as steps of discernment. One, we need to have a commitment to the Word of God and to, to our leaders that we care about who our leaders are, that we pray for them, that we hold our leaders accountable, that we don't have a leader who's unrepentant and uncorrectable. But one of the, one of the things that's going to help me most as your pastor, one of the things that's going to help me the most in preaching the Word of God to you is if you know the Word of God, so if I say something that's a little bit off, which I'm capable of doing, that one or more of you would lovingly come and say, hey, Chuck, did, what did you mean? What did you mean when you said that? Help me. I'm still growing in Christ. That we would make sure that those use the step of discernment, that, that I'm, I'm going to give two steps of discernment in just a minute, that we would use those steps of discernment to make sure those who we are being influenced by are credible and trusted, and that we would have relationships with each other. This is the gather piece. That we can come together, and we can evaluate teaching that we can rely on what God has done in each other. This is what makes the intergenerationality, again, a word you probably shouldn't look up, it makes it such a strength. Because when I go to, uh, if I have a question, if something I'm dealing with that I don't know what to do with, and I sit down with the elders, and I look across the room and I see George Holmes there, George has probably seen it. George knows how to handle the Word of God with it. George can fill in cracks that I'm missing. And he does it lovingly and graciously. Commitment to the Word. Make sure we're hearing from trusted, credible sources that we're with each other. Here's a couple discerning steps to help, help us see the wolves. If there's a gross mismatch between what is preached and what is lived out, you need to evaluate some stuff. I'm going to throw out two big names that over the years have influenced, I'm guessing between these two names, if any of us have been walking with Christ for a long time, I'm guessing these two people, one or both of them have influenced us. And the two names are Bill Gothard and Mark Driscoll. Men who have opened the word of God who have helped people see truth 
and who have had shameful falls. Bill Gothard, who did a lot of writing, a lot of teaching, had a very broad ministry, and not too long ago had a class action sexual law, uh, assault abuse lawsuit levied against him of which he was found guilty. Mark Driscoll, who taught in captivating ways, ways that we hadn't heard before, who was brash but pointed to the grace of God, and whose church and leadership lacked the very grace he preached. And while great things were done, great harm was done through the abuses of his power. When there is a gross mismatch between teaching and conduct, it can be really hard for us, especially for those who have been so helpful to us in our walk with Christ. But when there is that gross mismatch of teaching and conduct, here's what we need to do. We need to reevaluate what we've heard from them. Because what in their teaching allowed them to live the way they did? What in Bill Gothard's teaching gave him the power and influence that he felt he could exercise over young women? There's a problem there, and it needs to be figured out. It can be hard, because sometimes we're tempted to just throw it all out. And within Christian history, we have one teacher who never sinned, and his name is Jesus. We just celebrated Reformation Day this week. I know some of you celebrate this by dressing up in costumes and going to your neighbor's houses and getting candy. <laughs> Martin Luther, his writings on anti-Semitism fueled the Holocaust. That's a problem. And I'm really grateful he nailed the letter to a door. One of the biggest gifts of discernment the Lord gave us and his word is in Galatians 5. It's this two-paragraph section. We get the fruit of the flesh and we get the fruit of the spirit. And where we see bitterness and fear and malice and sexual immorality as prevalent fruits of the flesh in a leader, we need to be careful. And where we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, we need to celebrate that the Holy Spirit's using this man, the Holy Spirit's in, in work in this teacher's heart. And we need to use it as a litmus test of sorts. Finally, I want us to look at the danger that creeps in from our own deceitful hearts. And this kind of feeds into all of them. You know, we get this wonderful, wonderful piece of awful advice. Just follow your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? This is the blind leading the blind. And we're pretty good at not clicking on the wrong podcast. We're pretty good at not falling into the crazy TV preachers or anyone who takes up his cross in the form of a private jet. We fall for deceptiveness in our own hearts. Do what makes you happy. The counsel of our hearts, this sin won't matter in the moment, you deserve it. Or the following our own heart, leading to the road of guilt and shame, heap upon heap. The only thing you're entitled to is rejection and loneliness and hell. 
is what so many of us hear in our own hearts. You screwed it up, it'll never be good again. Or a heart that is fickle as can be. It sounds good to me in the moment. I have no need to look any deeper. Here's what we need to realize. That what makes my fleshly heart happy is an affront to the glory of God. Within the body of Christ and community of a local church, there's a built-in system of checks and balances. We need to hear from each other. I had a friend in college who was convinced for a moment in time that God wanted him to do a ministry to the bars, these people who would never go to a church. So he said, I'll become a bartender so I can minister to those in the bars. I convinced him that being the one to take the money from his kids so he could get drunk enough to go home and beat his wife was not a ministry. Filtering out the bad teaching is a body task. Remember these these words to Ephesians, to the Corinthians, to the church that Jude wrote to. These were written to churches. Certainly there are words to Timothy to guard good doctrine, to guard the good deposit, to watch over his life and his doctrine. But this is something the church needs to do. Kyle, pull up that picture. This is clearly an accurate portrayal of a rhinoceros, right? Look closely. In 1515, German artist Albrecht Dürer read a description of an Asian rhinoceros named Ulysses. Now, Albrecht had never seen a rhinoceros in in person or on purpose. (laughs) But the written portrayal of Ulysses, the rhinoceros, which, by the way, if any of you ever get a pet rhinoceros, please name it Ulysses. That's a fantastic rhinoceros name. He was intrigued to see what this would look like and felt that he owed it to his countrymen to show them that such a creature existed in other places of the world. So upon reading the description of such an exotic creature who looked to have armor plates on and had horns for defense, he made this wood carving so those around could know exactly what a rhinoceros looked like and that they existed. He carefully read a one-page description and made zoological and biological assumptions that got him in the ballpark, but kind of outside the foul pole, if you know what I mean. He used his insight, his intellect, and his ability to create a matter of fiction and pass it off as fact. Those who creep in love to take part of what they've heard of God's word. The word context means nothing to them. They hear a little bit about God. They build a straw man caricature to support their false teaching. They operate under a very incomplete knowledge, knowing God without ever going through Christ. And it does more than mislead. This painting does a lot more than mislead. It gives you enough. It's, it's oddly accurate on the ears. And I think that's what disturbs me the most, is how good the ears are on this picture of, of a rhinoceros. 
there were, there were people that were convinced this is exactly what it looks like, and they were convinced of a lie. And what false teachers do is they start with a description of the truth, a decontextualized description of the truth, and they fabricate fiction in the form of fact and pass it off. We need God's word. We need each other. We need to be devoted to this. Because too much is at stake to get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, we miss the fullness of what God has for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you are the holy God of heaven who has created all things on earth. We thank you, Lord, that though we have fallen short of your glory, that you would send your own son to die on the cross for our sins so that through faith in him, we could know you. Lord, help us and protect us from this false teaching that creeps in from all over the place and may the truth of who you are fully captivate our hearts, draw us closer together as brothers in Christ, and deepen our commitment to the mission of making disciples of all peoples and all tribes and all tongues and all nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.